Ephesians chapter 1, and we are continuing our exposition of this first chapter of Ephesians, and we are taking quite a bit of time as we go through this, because what we find in these first verses is very profound, it's very deep theology, and really what we determine from these scriptures and how we interpret this determines how we look at the rest of the Bible. You see, there's a a great difference in worldviews among Christians. And those who refuse to believe in the doctrines of grace are convinced, uh, whether they say it or not, that the world revolves around them. But those of us who have come to an understanding and have been enlightened concerning God's eternal purposes, we understand that uh, God's uh, all of this uh, is made for the glory of God, and the salvation of man is really just a sub-point in God's plan for the world to bring glory to himself. And the presentation that Paul gives in this first chapter leaves us no doubt who is in charge and exactly where God is headed with this world. The Bible tells us here that God chose his people before the foundation of the world. He gave them to the Son to redeem them. He called them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he fashions us into holy and righteous people for our ultimate glorification. Well, in the first lesson that we had on the book of Ephesians, we talked about verses 1 and 2, and I titled the message at that time, The Introduction and the Salutation. But actually, verses 1 and 2 are just a part of the introduction. Verses 1 through 14 are really the entire introduction to Ephesians. And um, these these uh, scriptures that we read right here set the premise for the rest of the book and it leaves us in no doubt about who is the center of the universe. Now, this evening, I want to look at the last verses of the introduction, and I want to discuss the subject tonight, the blessing of our inheritance. And this is part one of the sermon, and I realize that your outline tonight only has one point on it, and I haven't forgotten how to outline. The other points are coming next week, and don't be fooled by the brevity of the outline because short outline does not necessarily translate into short sermon and you'll find that in just a moment so if you would now let's turn uh, to Ephesians 1 let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word and we want to look at verses 11 through 14 and as I said this this uh, is the ending of the introduction to the book verse number 11 in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. And we just ask you, Lord, to give us wisdom as we speak from your word. Help us to understand what you have for us tonight. And may we gladly receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't think that we can read these first verses in Ephesians and 
uh, come to any other conclusion in our worldview that God is so intimately involved in every aspect of what takes place in this world that we could actually say that God orders and directs all of events that come to pass. In the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, there's a statement made that says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Now, in essence... This is what the verses that we've just read tell us. And the framers of this old Baptist confession of faith very well understood that God does order and direct everything that comes to pass. And what they say is actually the message of verse number 11. And let's read this verse again. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And I think we can look at at that verse and we can see hope and we can see steadfastness in God's promises. When we look at this and we see how God lays out before us, how Paul lays out before us uh, and informs us with surety that God is in control, that he's controlling all things and that God has not stepped back just to let this universe run on its own, then we can have full confidence that whatever God has promised us, he will certainly bring to pass. And you and I, uh, as we make promises, we may be unable to fill our promises. We may make a promise with full intent. We fully intend to do what we say, but there can be circumstances that arise that, that keep us from uh, fulfilling a promise that we have made. But that could never happen with God because whatever God has determined would come to pass in the council halls of eternity past, whatever he has determined must come to pass in time. And then what God promises to give us in time will come to pass because God most certainly has the power to make these things come to pass. So God has the absolute power and that's what makes us sure of this inheritance. Well, the attitude, of course, of most Baptists today is that God sits back and he waits for the will of the creature. He, he worries and he wrings his hands because he can never make a move that would interfere with man's free will. And I hope that you, that you understand this, that if that statement is true, then God's promises would be contingent on what you do. It would be contingent on your will and not God's will. And we would have no hope in that. We would have no surety that things would come to pass if God's waiting on the action, on, on our actions. I don't really worry about the issue of free will because I've seen what happens with everything that man touches. Man, left to himself, is is a disaster waiting to happen. And it comforts me to know that I'm in the hands of an all-sovereign God who is controlling all things. And I always know this, that God has my best interest at his heart. And so I never have to worry that God is in control. So when God says here that we have an inheritance, I look upon that as being so sure, so sure that I feel like I have it right now in my possession. 
I don't have to wait until I die to see it. I don't have to have that to prove it to me. I know it right now. And that's what faith is all about. That's what faith is. Faith is the hope that we have in God. And all the proof that I need is the promise that God has made. Now, Paul says in verse number 11, we have obtained an inheritance. And that's really a common method of speech among the Greeks at that time. Whenever something was so sure to come to pass that it absolutely could not fail, they would speak of it as if it had already happened. And that's why Paul uses this language. It's our present possession, the inheritance that God has promised is a present possession. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, this evening, the basis of our inheritance. And I suppose it would be good to consider what is this inheritance before we determine the basis upon which we would receive it. So what is the inheritance that Paul is speaking about? Well, he defines it for us in verse number 3, and he tells us that it's all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In Second Peter, Peter put it this way. He said, according as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that have called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so our, our spiritual blessings or our inheritance is these spiritual blessings in Christ. And it's actually everything necessary to make us holy and to make us prepared for eternal life. So God is working in us. God is working to perfect us. And when God is through working on us, when he's worked all things through us, then we will be holy and righteous in character, just like the Son of God. Now, as we think about the basis, we, uh, the basis of the inheritance, we need to consider this from two different perspectives. And the first one is we need to look at this from the divine outlook. In other words, we start looking at this from God's viewpoint. And there's some discussion among commentators when you come to uh, verse number 11 as to who is this inheritance or who actually has the inheritance. And it actually could be interpreted to mean that God has made us the inheritance. We are the gift of God that God has given to his son, and so we are his inheritance. And of course, that viewpoint could be very strongly supported by the scriptures. We read in many verses, especially in the book of John, where Christ calls us those whom the Father had given him. He speaks about us as being his sheep, and he talks about us as his possession. And then if you look down in verse number 18 of this first chapter, you find the phrase, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And so there's evidence in the scripture that that would be a valid interpretation. I don't think it's the main interpretation of this part of the scripture, but we can't make the mistake here that we are also God's inheritance, that God belongs to us and we belong to God. So both of us have an inheritance. Well, let me give you three aspects tonight about the divine outlook. First of all, we need to talk about God's predestination. It says, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So Paul comes back to this word once again. As I said the last time we talked about this, this is a troubling word for some people. They don't like the idea of predestination. Paul uses this word in verse number 5, and as I explained when we talked about it then, predestination is the blueprint of God's plan. 
It means to determine beforehand. God is the divine architect. And so he has a plan. He has a blueprint. He's put all of this together about how he would make things work. And God's plan is God's choice. And that's why Paul emphasizes over and over in the Scripture here that this is according to his will. It's all by God's will. And throughout history, we see God's plan unfolding. Every step of the way, God is orchestrating. He's directing the movements of men. We find God's plan from Adam to Abel. And then we see the plan developing as we go from Abel to Abraham. And then from Abraham to Moses. And then from Moses to David. And then from David to Mary. And then from Mary to Christ. And then from Christ to the apostles. And then from the apostles to us. And all along the way, God's plan is unfolding. We see this pattern emerging of the way that God does things. So this isn't haphazard. This doesn't happen randomly. It's not a random develop because man has decided something he would do according to his will. No, everything is working according to the blueprint of God. It's a predetermined plan. And that's why Peter would say when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost, speaking about Christ and Christ's crucifixion, he said, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This was in God's plan that Christ would be crucified, that the men would take him, and it all worked out according to God's plan. But yet you have Baptists who run around and say that there is no plan. God doesn't know who will be saved, and God doesn't determine salvation beforehand. But I would ask, who are you kidding? I mean, have you read the Bible? Can't you see the plan unfolding? I mean, can you read all of this and not see that God has a progressive plan that unfolds all the way through the Scripture? Now, before the foundation of the world, some were given to Jesus, and the plan said that he would come and redeem those people. And Jesus did according, come right according to the plan. The Bible says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. So how could you read Ephesians? I mean, how could you read any part of the Bible and deny that there is a predestined plan? Now, the next thing we see is God's power. And God's power is seen in the phrase where he says, who worketh all things according to his will. Now, the word worketh there is a very important word. It's the same word from which we get energy. And it means to work mightily. It means to work effectively. And this is a word that dispels all notions that God is passive. God is active, and this is an active word. And folks, I'm telling you, I I am really ashamed of Baptists who act as if we humans are lab rats. And you know, I can talk about Baptists. I'm a Baptist, so I can talk about what Baptists believe. And the majority of fundamental Baptist preachers believe that we are lab rats. Uh, they, They think that God has put us on this earth to see what we would do. God put us here to see how we would react to certain stimuli. And so he puts the cheese at the end of the maze, and he sees if we can find it. And he dangles it before us, and he sees if we can jump high enough to get it. And so they preach a gospel that has no power at all because they're not even sure if it will work. God sent Jesus into the world with possibility salvation. One of our local preachers said, I preach Christ to give men a chance to be saved. Well, he might preach chance salvation, but I don't. 
I don't preach chance salvation. I preach a Christ who came into this world to save every last person that he intended to save. And I believe that Christ will save who he intends. There's no chance involved in this. God's not a capricious God. I mean, he doesn't work things out on a whim. How do I know that? Because God has a plan. And God has the power to carry out this plan. Chance salvation means that there's a chance that nobody would ever be saved. Does that sound like God? doesn't sound like my God. Christ did not come into the world to offer chances. God sent Jesus into the world to save, and that's exactly what Jesus did. You see, if the gospel comes to me, and all that I have is a chance, then I'm going to be lost as Adam's goose. And that's because I'm a depraved creature. I'm a sinful creature. Uh, I'm dead in trespasses and sin. And we'll come to that very statement of Paul in in chapter 2. And as I think about the power of God and what God is able to do and how God calls men to life, I'm reminded of the story that we have in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, where Ezekiel was told to go preach to the valley of the dead dry bones. I want you to turn to that scripture, if you would. Let's look at Ezekiel, chapter 37. Uh, If you can't find it, uh, find Isaiah. Then go to Jeremiah. The next one's Ezekiel, and you'll find it just before Daniel. So somewhere you should be able to find the book of Ezekiel. But I want you to look at Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse number 1. Ezekiel 37, verse number 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. I preached a message on the dead dry bones about six years ago. I don't know if you remember that, but maybe I need to resurrect that sermon again, no pun intended, but maybe I ought to preach that again. But God told Ezekiel to go into this valley that was full of dead bones, and these weren't fresh bones. Now, these aren't bones that have a little bit of meat left on them. These are bones that had been laying in that valley. They had been picked clean by the birds and by the animals. Uh, They were bones that lay in that valley until they had become dry. They were parched. They were bleached white by the sun. And God told Ezekiel, go preach to the dead dry bones. And God said to Ezekiel, or excuse me, Ezekiel said to God, can these bones live? And Ezekiel said, I got that backwards. God said to Ezekiel, can the bones live? And and then Ezekiel replied to him, only you know, God, if they can. God says, can they live? Ezekiel says, you're the only one who knows that. Verse number four, God said, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, folks, that would be a tall order for a hyper-fundamentalist preacher, wouldn't it? Go out to the graveyard and preach to the dead. Go out there and tell them, I've got some good news for you. You've got a chance to live. You have a chance to be saved. Now, if I did that, you'd think that I was totally crazy. I go out to the graveyard, and I pick a tombstone to stand on, and I stand up there, and I start preaching to the dead corpses, and I say to them, hear the word of the Lord. Now, let me ask you something. How many chances should I give them? Should I give them one chance? Should I give them five chances? 
Should I go back every week and give them 52 chances? I mean, should I preach for a year? How many chances should I give them as I preach to them and tell them to hear? How many chances would it take? Well, you understand this, folks? If chance is all that's involved, I could preach throughout all of eternity and there is not one of those corpses who would come out of the grave and say, I'll take my chance. I'll be saved. Yeah, I'll come to life. Not one of them. But what if I were to go as Ezekiel went and I were to do as Ezekiel did? Now look at verse 5. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. And now you see that? God says, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. Now do you see chance salvation in that? There's no chance involved in this because the Almighty God calls them to life. He made them alive and so they could hear and believe. And this is the message of God working all things according to his will. Now let's go back for a moment. Let's think about how many are in this valley and how many in the valley came to life. Well, if you still got Ezekiel open, notice verse number 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded... And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breathe, O breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Now, I get cold chills when I read that. I could stand here and preach all night to you about the truths that come from this, but God called them to life. But then the Bible says, as yet there was no spirit in them. And so God said, come from the four winds, O breathe, O breathe upon these slain, that they may live. Well, how much control do you think that the dead dry bones had over coming to life? How much control did they have in this? Do you think that there were any in that valley who said, I like being dead dry bones. I mean, I, I, don't, I think I'll stay right here. Thank you very much. I like where I am. Friends, there wasn't a one of them. There wasn't a single one of them. They came to life when God called. Now, think about the wind in this verse. And I want to show you now... How, how God's word fits perfectly together in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want you to listen to what Jesus said in John 3, verse 8. He said, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The wind in Ezekiel is the Holy Spirit of God. And when the Spirit blew into them, there was life. They were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And folks, that is exactly what God does. Now you might think, or somebody might think, that we're lab rats, and God's waiting to figure out what we're going to do, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, that person is one of mine, and I'm going to save that person. I'm going to bring him to life in order that he might repent of his sins and believe in my son. There's no chance involved in this. I mean, this is as certain as the power and the might of God. God isn't passive. He's active in salvation. And when he decides to save, he will save. Now, do you know what that's called? That's called irresistible grace. The irresistible grace of God. Now, the fundamentalists will say, oh, no. God's grace can be resisted. It's 
your choice. It's not God's choice. Tell that to the valley of the dead dry bones. Now let me ask you something now. Why are you saved? Was it simply your choice or was God working in you first? Did you just decide one day, well, I sure do think that I need to be saved. I'd like to be saved, so I think that I'll be saved. Or was it the Holy Spirit who came and spoke to you and he spoke to your heart and then you understood the gospel? Was it because you wanted to be saved or because God wanted you to be saved? Now, you see, that's the difference in what I believe and what so many others believe. God wanted me to be saved, and so he saved me. All of my life, I didn't want to be saved. But God wanted me to be saved, and so he saved me. Now, when the Holy Spirit came, he opened up my heart. He shined the light into my heart, and then and only then did I say, I will choose you, Lord. I'll accept you, Lord. I'll receive you. Now, God spoke to us, and then we chose. And there is not a single person who chooses against Christ when they have been called to life. And that's what irresistible grace means. Now, you may say, well, pastor, this this passage in Ezekiel is an Old Testament passage. But does the New Testament teach the same thing? I'm glad you asked me that. I want to give you the answer to it. I want you to turn your Bible to John chapter 11. And all of you should be familiar with John chapter 11 because the shortest verse in the Bible is in John eleven thirty-five, And that verse says, Jesus wept. And why did Jesus weep? It was because his friend Lazarus had died. In fact, when Jesus arrived, the funeral was already over. Lazarus was dead and he'd been in the grave for four days. He'd been there long enough that his body began to decay. And so his sister said, well, he's already begun to stink. Now, if you found John 11, I want you to look at verse number 14. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, look at verse 17. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now, skip down to verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Now, would we, would we agree, and are we convinced, and they were convinced that Lazarus was dead? Are we all agreed upon that? Jesus said, he's dead. He's been in the grave four days. Martha said, he stinks. He's been dead four days. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus did after they took that stone away from the cave where they buried him. Look at verse 43. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Now, how do you think that Lazarus came out of that grave? Could he hear Jesus talking to him? I mean, what do you think happened first? Did he hear first and then he came to life? Or did he come to life and then he heard? Which do you think it was? Most likely, he came to life and then he heard, didn't he? Because he was dead. We already established that. He was dead, so he couldn't hear what Jesus said to him. He had to come to life first. And then when he came to life, Jesus said, come forth. Now, do you suppose that Lazarus sat in the tomb for a few minutes, deciding whether he would come out? And he was thinking, well, I'm dead, so I think that I'll stay here. This, this is much better. No. 
when he was called, he came out of the grave. Folks, that is what we call irresistible grace. And it's the same here as it is with the valley of the dead dry bones in Ezekiel. When God calls you to life, you will come to life. And you will believe. And when you do it, you do it because you wanted to. Now, this is God's power. Just like Paul says in verse 11 of the text, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. But I'm not through yet. Let's apply this, a principle, this principle directly to salvation. We find it a couple of places in the book of Acts, and we've been all the way through the book of Acts, of course, and if you've missed the, the cohesiveness of God's word, then you've missed the point. But now turn your Bible to Acts chapter 16, and let's look at Acts 16, verse number 14, and this is the story of Lydia. Lydia was one of the women that, that Paul met at Philippi, and this was just before that Paul was thrown into Philippian jail. Look at Acts 16, verse number 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended under the things which were spoken upon. Now, do you see this? Now, I want to ask all of you seminary students out there tonight, and you have to be brilliant to catch this. This is a very hard verse to understand, but I'm going to ask you this question anyway. Who opened her heart? Who? The Lord. Lord. Did you say the Lord opened her heart? Let me ask you another question. Have you ever heard someone say that you have to open your heart and let Jesus come in? Who opens the heart? You or God? God. Now, according to Acts 16, 14, the Lord opens the heart. Now, I'm struggling real hard to make Bible scholars out of you right here. What happens when the Lord opens your heart? Let me tell you. The end of verse 14 says, She attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now, do you know what that means? It means that she believed. When God opened her heart, she believed. And so when God opened the door, she didn't say, Shut the door. Get out of here, Jesus. No, she attended unto the word. She believed. And what is that? irresistible grace. You see, God has the power to bring salvation, and he doesn't offer chances to be saved. He brings salvation. The guy up north doesn't believe that. I just showed you by the Bible why I go here and not up there. But I'm not done with you yet, folks. You're still in the book of Acts, so let's go back to another place. Flip back to a few pages from chapter 16 to chapter 13, and let's look at verse number 48. Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, do you see this here? They heard and they believed. Who was it that heard and believed? Is it those that are given a chance? No. It says those that were ordained to eternal life. Now, let me ask you, do you see the pattern emerging here? Uh, Does this sound kind of similar to what we've seen in other places in the Bible? I mean, when I'm talking about John 6 and John 10 and John 17 and Acts 16 and Romans 8 and Romans 9 and Romans 10 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 1, and where else? In the book of Ephesians. It kind of sounds like the same thing, doesn't it? It's all kind of working together here. Now, folks, we're talking about the power of God. We're not talking about a puny God who's waiting for the rats down here to do something funny. I mean, our God's not waiting to see if we're going to find the cheese. And he, he's not uh, trying to see if we're going to eat it if we do find it. 
And he, he's not tricking us and fooling us with false doors and, and false pathways to see if somehow, some way, you can navigate yourself to heaven. He's not doing that. He has a plan. He has a pattern. He predestined it. And by his power, he brings that plan to pass exactly as he determines. Now, that's why I know I have an inheritance. So we see God's predestination and we see God's power. Thirdly, we have God's preeminence. And God's preeminence is in verse number 12, where it says that we should be to the praise of his glory. Now, isn't it amazing how many times that Paul brings us back to this theme? It's God's glory. It's God's glory. Oh, wait a minute. It's God's glory, isn't it? That's what he says. You know what happens when you twist the theme of the Bible to man's glory instead of God's glory? That kind of thinking will lead you straight to the psychiatrist's couch. I mean, you've got to figure out, how are you going to make all these verses in the Bible fit into your scheme of how you are the center of the universe? And the hyper-fundamentalists have actually tried this. This is what they do with their seed of faith theories and their, their free will of man theories. And what they say is, God's not going to interfere with your choices because he loves you so much that he's going to let you decide for yourself. Well... When you hear enough of that, you're going to go crazy, especially when you understand how lost that you are. God loves me enough that he's going to let me make my own decisions. And when you see that your free will has done nothing for you but to get you into trouble and to lead you into sin, how are you going to come to the conclusion that God loves me so much that he's not going to influence my decisions? How foolish is that? God won't interfere. How can God love you so much that he's going to let you destroy yourself? It doesn't make any sense. And you remember all those sermons I preached on, on the man's sin nature? And you remember how I preached a pig is a pig is a pig? And, and how I said that you can't move yourself from God's, into God's spiritual kingdom? It's impossible. You can't do it. Why can't you do it? Because your nature dictates your will. What you are dictates what you will do. And your free will is only free in the sense that it will lead you into sin. Now, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's not a matter of will you sin. Your free will decides which sins they're going to be. You're going to sin. You're just deciding which ones they're going to be. Well, it's great to have free will, isn't it? Let me tell you something. Your free will cannot save you because you can't choose God of your own will. Now, it's because God is preeminent and because this is for his glory and not yours that what God does, he comes to you and he changes your will so that you will believe. And when you learn that this is all for God's glory and not your glory, then you surrender to God's will and the whole picture changes for you. God's will becomes predominant. God changes your will and once he changes your will in regeneration then you will believe, and that's the only reason why you ever will. Don't let anybody try to fool you with a free will theory that says free will can lead you to Christ. Free will leads you to sin. That's all it ever will lead you into. Now, Christians get messed up today because they're too busy trying to figure out how they can make this all about them instead of about God. But once you learn that it's all about God then you'll react like a church member who came into my office the other day and she said, since I understand this, it's liberating. And I can't put it any better way than that. This is liberating. I mean, this is real freedom. Uh, When God is first and he's in control and he's preeminent, that's real freedom. You don't feel coerced. Anybody here feel coerced? You feel like God's pushing you in the back and saying you have to do something? 
I don't feel that way. I didn't feel that way when I got saved. I didn't feel like God hogtied me. No, he changed my will, and I wanted to believe in him. I trusted in him. And so suddenly, irresistible grace and God's, uh, God's infallibility and God's choices, they don't seem forced to me. You don't feel made to. You feel liberated. You're free. And that's why Paul, after contemplating all of this, thinking about the power and the greatness and the preeminence of God, you know what he said? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. And that's the basis of our inheritance. It's God's predestination. It's God's power. And it's God's preeminence. Now, I do have another piece of this. There's another perspective on the basis of our inheritance. There's a divine perspective. But then there's also the human perspective. Now, tonight I've spent all my time talking about God's perspective. And, of course, that's a good place to start. But there is a human perspective. We're not lab rats, we're humans. And just as God has predestined the plan, he's also predestined the part that we play in the plan. And so there's a human side to it. How does human responsibility mesh with God's sovereignty? Well, that's a question that we will never be fully able to understand. But that doesn't mean we're not to believe it. We are to believe it because God says it. Both of these things are true. God is sovereign in salvation. But man is responsible to believe. Now next week I'm going to come back and in part number two of the sermon we're going to talk about this human perspective and then we'll also deal with some other aspects of our inheritance. But praise the Lord and thank him for it. God is in control and he does exactly what he wants and what he wants and what he does is always the very best thing. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity to talk about these things from the book of Ephesians. I just ask you, Lord, to help people understand what we've said. Uh, Paul, in preaching, makes no arguments. He's not trying to tell us something that's impossible for us to know. But you have revealed this to to us. And all that you expect us to do is simply to believe what you've said. And Lord, help us to do that. Blessing this invitation, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.